0: In a minute, you'll hear the recording of a talk I gave last night, but the voice you are hearing right now is actually an artificial intelligence trained to sound like me, so if it sounds weird at times, this is why. I gave this talk to a private community called the Generation Z Mafia. They host what they call fireside chats, where they interview someone, but they don't record or share it. But I always record my side of all the talks I give, and due to popular request, I'm sharing this one here. I started recording a little late, And I did not record the interviewer without her permission, so I've added in little voice notes to restate the questions I was asked. Thank you to the Generation Z Mafia for inviting me to talk, and thank you to Emma Salinas for the thoughtful questions. It starts in the middle of my answer to the question of what will happen to academia. Here it goes. Or something like that, or goes away. I don't think that's going to happen, simply because there's so much power behind it. There's so many institute, deep institutional supports. You could even say the deep state, if you wish. And uh, so much money, so much vested interest that yeah, it's gonna it's gonna die hard. It's gonna it's gonna die a slow, lingering death. I think, but we're already in late stages of that. For all intents and purposes, it's a dead place. It's a dead institution. And and I'm telling you from uh, someone who's been in and out of it in the UK and the United States, it's just there's no life there. There anymore. Uh, it's like where people go to get a salary and to die, pretty much. There's just, I know radical thinkers, I know philosophers, scientists in and outside of in- institutions, and I know what true intellectual life feels like. It's a real phenomenological state, you could even say. And I know what it is, and you just can't find it much in academia. If you're lucky, you can find it like at the bar every so often with your close buddies uh, when people are, you know, letting their guard down. But that's it. So I think it's going to go, I think it's basically in a terminal stage of cancer that will take a long time to finish off uh, but it's terminal nonetheless. That's my basic descriptive diagnosis. Here Emma asked me what the alternative shelling point will be. I think there's going to be an archipelago of shelling points in the social science literature you might say multiple equilibria. I think you're going to see more and more splinter groups. That are essentially going to bootstrap their own uh, cultural reality, more or less. And, you, and again, you're already seeing it. It's not like a, a prediction or speculation so much as it is an observation of things that are already happening. I think it's just going to accelerate. To take my initiative, for instance, and not to plug my own shit or anything, but um, like the things I'm building are obviously based on my own uh, model of the world and where it's going. I think what I'm doing, other people are going to be doing also. and There's going to be thousands of pretty much small-scale intellectual communities that are able to basically replicate all the structures of academia, that all of the basic features and structures that you need for independent thinkers to do serious, penetrating, truth-seeking work, whether that be in art or science or whatever, they're, it's not that hard to replicate those structures. We, I think we know pretty well what those structures are, and relatively small groups can bootstrap them. Uh, and so that's what I'm doing and it's working. And so if I'm not a genius, if I can do it and it's working, I'm sure other people are going to do it and it's going to be working. And in some sense, other dynamics we're already observing are already that, right? If you look like you folks, for instance, I don't know too much about you, but like any, any discord server with a bunch of smart, creative, honest people in it, trying to figure something out are essentially learning what I'm talking about. And so I think, I guess if I have a unique take here or any added value here, it's, I have theorized a little bit what this means more technically or why this is going to happen or, or what exactly it involves. And what I think is not fully appreciated by a lot of people is how radical this process is. Like, It's not just communities, quote unquote communities. That's a naive, domesticated euphemism, the term community. A lot of people talk about the rise of different online communities. That's such an insane understatement. It's not bad at all. It's literally people are defecting from the, the shared sense of mainstream reality that has existed for centuries at least. And they are literally figuring out ways to create their own new realities because that's essentially what it comes down to. I have I have a few essays I wrote called, I have a series of essays, it's called uh, Hard Forking Reality. And I think that's essentially what's happening is people cultural entrepreneurs are realizing that the basic meaning of what reality even is actually up for grabs right now. And there's this mad scramble by cultural entrepreneurs to essentially... Develop compelling theories of what the frick is even happening, what the world even is right now. And there's no real ultimate mechanism for the different cultural entrepreneurs developing those different models to calibrate or adjudicate themselves. So there's this free reign going on. There's a lot of degrees of freedom right now where if you have a, if you have a creative vision of what the world is or should be, and you have the will to basically create a series of cultural artifacts o- over time that embody or represent that vision of reality that you believe is real. And you you just have the discipline and skill really to push it through and to make it of uh, reality over time. Then you are essentially like the founder of a, of a new state. You're essentially the founder of a new government, a new reality on, on some base level. And uh, people who are less capable of d- developing their own model of reality, because it's a freaking hard thing to do. Most people are not, just most people are not equipped to do it. It's just that simple. And most people don't want to do it. Most people shouldn't have to do it. All of those people, the much larger number of people who don't want to create their own reality state and foster a community around it, Um, All of those people are right now scrambling, looking for leaders uh, who can basically give them some sense of what reality is or should be. And they're signing up to be with those leaders. They're signing up to join the governments or to join the cultural realities of those cultural entrepreneurs. And yeah, I think a lot of people know this and see this as happening, but it's described in these really underwhelming terms that really understate the case. It's like this mad scramble for reality is really what's going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I think that's the future. That is absolutely the immediate future. Everything is going to be cult-like. And people won't say this because cults have a bad rap for very good reason. They're, da- they're dangerous. They almost always end badly. And there's almost always uh, insane, destructive power dynamics at play. But that is absolutely the world that we're going into. And I think whether we like it or not, it's not like a choice. I think it's simply because the actual foundations of mainstream reality are have been broken down. Trust Social trust is declining. Trust in all mainstream institutions is declining to catastrophic levels. So the only alternative is essentially communities have to learn to bootstrap their own cults. And the question becomes, what is the cult design that is least harmful? What is the cult design that is most amenable to the equal and full emancipation or empowerment of all the members involved? And I think that's essentially just a matter of institutional design. Here, Emma asked me about America versus the rest of the world. Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't have a strong prior on this, uh, but I'll give you a hypothesis, which, in other words, will be a a strong opinion weakly held. Uh, This is what makes sense to me at the moment when I think about your question, but I don't know how strongly I believe this. My instinct is to say that most great cultural creativity around the world comes from America in recent Memory. Of course, there are some interesting and impressive achievements, no doubt, places like Singapore or whatever. I'm definitely not like shitting on uh, all the interesting, genius, creative people uh, from other different countries. But if you just look at the basic drift of world history over, let's say, the past 300 years or so has been the dynamo. America is the place where radical cultural ingenuity starts, and then it spreads around the rest of the world. So there is a decent case to be made that you're right that the wild ideas I'm articulating have a, have a certain perhaps American spirit to them. And I suspect in this future that we're navigating, in a weird way, I, I do actually place my bets on America being the locus of the most important cultural entrepreneurship that will spread around the world. Frankly, I think the Chinese model is not viable in the long run, even if it's impressive in the short run. That might be an unpopular opinion. A lot of people think China is the future, but I just don't think it has the long-term mimetic staying power that uh, American-styled cultural entrepreneurship has. So great questions. Here Emma asks what I think about Curtis Yarvin's current writing project, and how do I interpret the Bronze Age pervert phenomenon? Uh, the first question, unfortunately, I have to punt on because I just haven't been reading it. I know Curtis and I like Curtis, and I think he's very smart, very worth reading for sure. But I'm just at a stage in my life and have I have a certain attitude towards my own intellectual productivity that I'm trying really hard to just ignore Everything being produced in the current moment by any of my contemporaries, and I'm really just trying to focus on the books and the works and the ideas that have stood the test of time. So that's not a that's not throwing shade on Curtis at all. But uh, I just haven't been reading it because I've been trying to to pretty much ignore everything contemporary while I f- focus really hard on on the projects that I'm really obsessed with at the moment. And as for Bronze Age Pervert. I did read that book. I read the first half of it. I didn't really find it very readable. I thought it was cool and funny for sure. I respect, I definitely respect The Bronze Age Pervert and I thought it was a very interesting and and in its own way impressive project. But I, I found the book not enough like personally rewarding to actually read more than half of it. But it was interesting and cool nonetheless. I'm not throwing shade. And my reading on The Bronze Age Pervert, I think it's pretty clear in retrospect why it got the traction that it did get. And it's simply because the ideas that it represents are just dramatically undersupplied due to essentially artificial political constraints. So it's just basic supply and demand, right? If you can find real intellectual ideas that respond to a core part of human nature that are being systematically undersupplied because of fashions or because of political constraints or whatever the case might be, then uh, yeah, if you can put them into a punchy, fun book, guess what? It's going to get a lot of traction. And I think that's what happened. And I think in that case, it's pretty much, it's uh, the real value there that it's representing that got a lot of traction is unadorned, unapologetic, naive, masculine, Energy or spirit, or I don't know what exactly what you want to call it, but the way that it combines bad grammar and bad spelling it signals its own intellectual unpretentiousness, like the fact that it doesn't really care that much about being polished. Um, combined with just sheer masculine martial virtues, guess what? That's like a huge portion of the entire history of like essentially male consciousness in some ways. And it's exactly that aspect of, of male consciousness that has been systematically undervalued and, and pushed out of mainstream culture for decades now. So um, it makes perfect sense that someone uh, who could come along and give voice to that in an uh, unapologetic, fun, interesting, internet savvy way, um, of course, it's going to blow up. It's going it's to have a huge audience. And I'm glad that, that it did. Now Emma asked me why academia has become left-wing since the 1990s. Yeah, it's a great question, and I would see it as a relatively epiphenomenal symptom, if you will, of deeper trends in Western civilization, namely the what I, in some of my research in the past, I've I've called it the pacification of the world. Uh, You could also call it the domestication, or um, to use a somewhat more provocative term, would be feminization, but I don't really see it as primarily a a gender issue. But it's pretty much since the early 1970s, across the board, institutions as such have been able to essentially devalue and push out everything that is rough, aggressive, dangerous, or harsh, and allow in and value higher and privilege more and more. That which is soft and flattering of a a naive, vague, soft humanism i would say in in other words and you can see this across many other dynamics in which you know since the 70s pretty much yeah that which is that, that that which is at all like dangerous to the actual stability of institutions themselves has been systematically uh, undervalued and excluded and and they've done that more and more. If you look at like protest activity for instance or you look at watch movies from the 70s, look at representations of young men in the 1970s in movies from the 1970s or look at radical left protest movements in the 1970s in the, these totally different domains in both cases what is examples of dangerous vitalism. I really like this word vitalism. It's basically just like a lust for life that Uh, defies the expectations or constraints of peaceable domestic pacified institutional norms. And it's dangerous. It's horrifying. In the case of political protest, it leads to things like actual guerrilla warfare, like actual revolutionary violence. In the case of young masculine culture, it's it's um, getting into bar fights and driving your car off a cliff or accidentally killing a guy because he looked at your girlfriend the wrong way. These aren't necessarily good things, but they are examples of what I call a, a general vitalism. And institutions as such, where I'm going with this is that institutions as such, since the 1970s have basically suffocated they've gotten better and better at suffocating anything which is vital anything which expresses an unapologetic expression expression of life's intensities and i think the so you can basically make a whole catalog of a bunch of other examples and i think the shift in academic Ideology, for instance, towards uh, a culture that increasingly selects for left wing professors. Uh, I think that's just a, a relatively late and a relatively shallow symptom of this much larger trend that I think starts around the 70s. That's how I see it. I think you're going to see more of what you're seeing now, which is basically people are realizing that huge aspects of the human condition have been essentially pushed out of institutions. And what's happened now, what I think is unique and interesting about the current moment is we've crossed this threshold where if you're actually interested in those repressed or undervalued aspects of the human condition, that which I'm calling vitalism for shorthand, but you could call it other things too. If that's what you're really interested in, if that's, a, if, if that's what speaks to you most, or that's what you're most interested in pursuing or cultivating or trying to make a part of your life, we've only just recently crossed the threshold where due to various technologies, it's now in your interest to basically do some weird creative personal project outside of institutions which represent those underserved values or those institutionally suppressed values. And if you can do it, guess what? There's a huge audience of people that resonate with it because it is in fact a true aspect of the human condition. And so I think that's what's unique about the current moment is due to technologies, it's now feasible for essentially cultural upstarts to build their own projects around these types of values. And those who do it rapidly get attention and audiences. And ultimately that's where status and power uh, and money flow. And that's proven by examples such as Bronze Age Pervert in my own personal way, in a very different way that uh, what I'm doing and the success I've had proves it also. But many other cases and cultural practices and and organizations and initiatives right now are, are proving this. And what I think I would expect to see over the next five to 10 years in particular Is the simple implications of normal people or just more people realizing this and understanding it? So someone like Bronze Age Pervert is like you think of it. If you look, if you look at like technology adoption curves, people are probably familiar with this. There's like an S curve shape. The early adopters at the beginning, there's a very small number of them. But once they prove it can be done, once they prove that it's good and it becomes popular, then tons of people start doing it, right? Until it saturates the the whole population. So I think we're just at the very beginning of these types of counter institutional. Anti-institutional, cultural entrepreneurship models. Really, we're at the very beginning. It's proving people are proving that it works, and we've we haven't seen anything yet because still so few people are doing it. So I I think it's a very safe bet that over the next five to ten years, just more normal people are going to realize, oh, these dead institutions, which actually require a ton of cost from me, they ask. All of this sacrifice and submission from me, they actually don't deliver half of the attractive results and rewards that I could get from just being a genuinely creative, interesting, intelligent person in my own way, in my own style, building my own counter institutions. And yeah, so I think that's just going to become knowledge of that is going to become more spread. Knowledge of of how to do that also is going to become more widely spread. And I think it'll totally change the fabric of society very soon. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I've learned so much about that over the past year or two. Here Emma asks if I have any advice for young people. I'd be happy to take any like specific questions, but the big points that jump out to me are would be one question a lot of people ask uh, which i have a strong opinion about is should you try to reform the institutions from the inside or should you just try to go outside the institutions and build something radically new and independent clearly i think anyone who knows like my story and what i'm doing uh knows that i'm firmly on the side of uh, seeing all currently existing institutions as pretty much unsalvageable and so that's my take on that so in other words the advice there is if you have your foot halfway in some institution and what i mean by that is concretely like the people in your life who whose opinions you care about if some of those people take their cues from mainstream institutions that could be a parent that could be an advisor that could be a teacher or it could just be the friends you have or the role models that you look up to if some number of those people are representatives of mainstream old institutions prestige institutions and that's where they take their cues from that's where that's where you know their values lie and are oriented by if that is the case then My advice would be, I'm not, I would never say disown them or whatever, be friends and have a diverse set of relationships with whoever you want. But I would encourage young people in particular to really harden their will and really understand that people are highly influenced by their own economic interests and their own institutional investments. And your father or mother might be super wise and super loving and super cool. And your mentor or advisor might be a great Brilliant person, but their advice and their suggestions and, and what they think is valuable and and good and promising is highly conditional on their own personal interests and histories. And I think one of the hardest things for young people to appreciate is that like you have to be able to, to use the Freudian phrase, you have to be able to kill the father. And that doesn't mean being rude or violent to them. It just means you have to see that people you love and care about and respect a lot might have their... They might be stuck or sunk in a world that maybe is dying more rapidly than they understand. And if you want to get out in front of the way the world is going... I think as a young person, you need to prioritize independence of mind and you need to start creating psychological and emotional buffers between the people in your life who maybe would look down on you or would judge you negatively if you decided to break free from everything they know and do something wild, totally new and wild and and weird. I, I think you should start building the psychological fortifications to just be like really weird as soon as possible and to do so militantly and confidently. Here Emma asks me how we can reform mainstream society to be more accepting of weird and creative people. Culture as such is never going to value or accept this weirdness. Like society as a whole is always going to hate you for doing anything like we- truly weird or creative. And that's just a simple fact. That's borne out in the entire history of of philosophy and art and and like true art, radical art. And you see it time and time again. So I think that's very clear. And I'm not even saying it's. I'm not even saying that to be romantic or not necessarily flattering myself or anyone else. Like you could be totally wrong and stupid, but, or you could be smart and, and genius. Regardless, if you're doing something like truly independent and creative, that's off the grid of contemporary, legible, institutional, social reality, generally you are going to be hated. At at best, really. And you're going to be like seriously punished at worst. Or I shouldn't say that exactly. Technically, you probably the best you can do is to be just confusing to, to be not you're going to be not understood. But in any event, it's a yeah. Are you hearing me? Yeah. In any event, it's my point is that no matter what society as a whole. Almost by definition, right? Almost technically or structurally, it it frowns upon and punishes and devalues anyone who breaks from it too strongly. It's almost like a. It's almost by definition. I don't think there's any question. Your initial question was, you know, how can we? How can you make society more conducive to creativity and, in, and independent thinkers and makers? And I think on some level, you just can't. And one who wants to pursue a truly independent, creative or, or cultural project, I think, just needs to school up on the traditions of of these types of people and understand that through all of history, actually like truly revolutionary thinkers and creators have historically been subjected to much worse than we're subjected to what we call today being canceled, or being shunned or being pushed out of institutions. It's a cakewalk compared to you know, what Socrates faced or what so many other radical thinkers and creators in the past have faced. It's a cakewalk. All it means is yeah, people like normies in like dying institutions, maybe think you're a loser, or they think you're bad, or they think you're naughty or whatever. But who cares? It's really not that bad. And the other concrete suggestion I have on this is really, you just have to the main thing is you have to go find people who think like you and who really are interested in radical wild ideas and making shit that's real and radical and dangerous. If you can just find even three other people who don't give a shit about mainstream opinion, don't give a shit about institutions and who just have that lust for ideas and that lust for true creativity and freedom and provocative like creativity, just find you only need two, only one really, one other person who can relate to you on that. And um, you can have a perfectly happy life just doing your own thing and making something weird and special. And uh, that's what I would put, I would encourage people to put all their money on that uh, instead of trying to make society more conducive to this stuff because society is it evolves almost technically to prevent crazy individuals from overthrowing it. So I think we should just accept that. Here Emma asked me where is the current counterculture in 2020? The counterculture of 2020, one thing I think you have to disabuse yourself of is the mental model or the mental expectation in which the counterculture will be some objectively observable central thing that like most many people can see together that is just out the window i think there's going to be many countercultures so there already are many countercultures and that fragmentation is just going to accelerate so i think my answer to the question would be in the counterculture in 2020 will not look like a counterculture or the counterculture it will be illegible to most people and in fact there will be multiple and the only ones that will be legible to you are the ones that you have a connection to that you get involved in that you're able to actually speak to and participate in and create in and in some way the only way to really access a a counterculture today one of the many countercultures like i'm guessing this discord server is a is an example of what i'm talking about gen z mafia is probably an example of what i'm talking about like i have no idea what you all are really about i don't know your values i don't have faces for who you all are on some level, it's illegible to me. I know a few of you. I've seen a few of you on Twitter. I've looked at your stuff. So I have a very superficial, low resolution, distant view of this particular counterculture I'm talking with today. Um, but I recognize that it's only one of many. There's literally thousands of other Discord servers and private DM groups with their own identity and shared value and, and sociological correlates. And for most people, most intents and purposes, although this counterculture as a set of Individual countercultures, as I said, it's actually pretty huge. There's actually a thriving aggregate counterculture in some sense. The problem is they're all radically illegible to each other, and you never really get one until you're in it and you're like a member and you're actively creating and participating in it. Uh, because ultimately, that's the only way to internalize and and have knowledge of the codes and the norms and the values that define these countercultures. So that's that th- the summary of this answer of what does the counterculture look like in 2020, it probably looks like whoever you and your wild and, and creative badass friends are. And just know that there's thousands of other groups like you all, but you just don't know of them or you don't hear about them. But I think maybe the next stage of counterculture will be when all of the individual little little countercultures like my groups and your groups and all of the individual groups... Develop meta languages for communicating and interoperating. I think that's like a viable and attractive next step. Um, not to necessarily centralize or aggregate the countercultures into one or something like that, but just to make them more dynamic and productive across them. Here, Emma asks me, What are some examples of thriving countercultures? Yeah, is the question in history or in today? Today's day and age? Today, you said? Yeah, you broke up. You said today, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Okay. So with the caveat that, again, I'm not a member of any of these organizations, so I don't really know the the inside, but I can tell you examples of what I'm talking about. I'm pretty sure as someone who's an explorer of many different c- countercultures, I at least have a passing familiarity with some. One would be like QAnon is a really good example, I think. It's huge. It's very active. It's very emotionally and affectively Activated, like the members are super passionate and super all in, and they have their own unique theory of American politics. It's it's essentially it's a novel theory. They're like a they're almost like a bootstrapped collective political theory intelligence machine in an interesting way. And I'm not even commenting at all on how true or false their theories are. To me, that's actually. Um, quite beside the point because the they operate. The point is they are a machine. There's thousands of them who identify with it, who believe it's all true and who affectively and emotionally and creatively are invested in it and they participate in it. And and they literally see themselves as going against the most powerful forces of the establishment, whether it be the deep state or the the, the elite pedo networks or whatever you want to call them. So QAnon is one, I think, very powerful example of a successfully bootstrapped subculture and a a good model of what it looks like. And another example would be these boogaloo boys i i don 't know too much about them, but these are the guys who they 're right leaning they wear Hawaiian shirts underneath like tactical bulletproof vests, and they like toting guns and uh, you read different things i don 't know too much about them i don't know what to trust, but uh, the mainstream narrative is that they're they're like white supremacist racists who are like instigating race war or something like that. Uh, I have no idea if that 's true or if that's like mainstream moralistic exaggeration uh, so again'm i 'm not like saying I like or dislike any of these groups, but clearly again uh, they have there's a, lot, there's a large number of them. They're active. They have a stylistic and aesthetic um, coordination that is affectively and emotionally activated and a worldview of politics and what needs to happen and what should happen. That's all both organically bootstrapped, but nonetheless, it, it imposes real fidelity among the members and alignment and coordination among the members. So that's just like another example. Another example would be Flat Earth. I'm very impressed by the Flat Earth community. If you watch the Flat Earth documentary on Netflix, at least it was on Netflix, I was very impressed by how surprisingly scientific they were. Of course, you could say pseudoscientific. And again, I have no horse in the race. I do have a horse in the race. I don't think flatter theory is correct, but I was nonetheless impressed by the genuine intellectual honesty and curiosity of these people, like the people um, who are most passionate about flat earth, the leaders of those communities, they actually do science experiments. I was stunned by this. They actually did pretty difficult, time-consuming and resource-expensive active efforts to actually... Test their hypothesis that the earth is flat. I was stunned by this because a lot of people would think, Oh, it's just disingenuous, crazy people. No, it's actually pretty clever people who are just don't trust anything they're told. And they're like, they have this radical, unique little subculture organized again, affectively activated. There's strong, legit community bonding and there's a genuine model of the world that they are trying to figure out. So I think that's another pretty successful example. I could keep going, but I think those give you like a sense of the types of current forerunners of what powerful subcultures are, are emerging. I, I guess I'd say one more thing concretely, which is maybe interesting and unique, which is my little personal wager or interest is the prospect of building a subculture like these subcultures and that it's radically anti-institutional. It's crazy, super unique, uh, certainly very weird and ungovernable. And just it truly sets flight from all of mainstream norms and grids. But what if you could do that where the Actual shared criteria of truth and desirability and goodness was objective reality itself, and no one has really been ever been able to pull that off, of course, like in a weird way, the flat earthers are trying to do it, like I was saying they're they're actually trying to use science experiments and stuff like that to get out a hidden truth. The problem is like a lot of them just don't know science and and they don 't actually understand what's really going on. So my theory is like what if you had a group that was like as wild and crazy epistemologically and politically as the Flat Earthers or QAnon or whatever, but you actually filled it with legit social scientists and legit physical scientists and legit philosophers. And you actually could calibrate all of those people on some objective or intersubjective criteria that doesn't go off the rails in a bad way, but only goes off the rails in a good way. (laughs) That's like my longer term thesis or vision, but I'm I'm not quite there yet. (laughs) Here Emma asks me why so many of the exemplary countercultures right now have a right-wing tendency. I would push back a little bit in that like the contemporary social justice movement is, I would say, very similar structurally. So it would be another example of what I'm talking about. So I think I'm like all of the people who are like super activated around woke politics right now. Are essentially a left-wing version of flat Earth theory, and and again, I'm not you know saying one is better than the other or smarter than the other. I'm saying structurally it's very similar, and and the the only difference that the the left-leaning ones are, are centralized and they have these kind of institutional coordination. Supports. So you mentioned like shelling points before. So I'm gonna assume you and your audience are familiar with the game theory problems of coordination. And if you have some centralized structure that can force a bunch of different players in a game to all converge around the one shared center, that can be a device or or structure that can force convergence and coordination and the left has that right now. It is pretty much all of the high prestige mainstream cultural institutions, such as academia and journalism, mainstream prestige, respectable academia or journalism. All of that, that is a big, um, well resourced, centralized structure that allows all of the cult like phenomena and reality fragmentation on the left. To at least stay within one orbit of its of itself, you know what I mean. So it's not any closer to reality necessarily. It's just more coordinated and more centralized because of asymmetrical institutional advantages that it has at this particular moment. So I think that explains why a lot of the more dynamic and interesting examples of offshoots and upstarts that I mentioned and cataloged a little bit are coming from the right and they're coming from places like 4chan um, is precisely because the left the the, the cult and reality fragmentation of the left is coordinated and centralized more. That, that would be my response to that. Yeah, here Emma asked me what caused the left to gain dominance over mainstream institutions. I think it has something to do with broadcast media, okay? So if you recall, I mentioned before that it was sometime in the early 1970s when there seemed to be across many domains a generalized pacification uh, in which like vitalistic human energies for good or for bad were all of a sudden increasingly constrained and powerfully constrained in many different ways. And I gave some examples. What I think is going on there, ultimately, the underlying cause of that is that with the rise of broadcast media, there are increasing incentives to tell stories that are humane for the simple reason that stories that are humane are more well-received. And if you can tell a story that rises to the top of the centralized broadcast status pyramid, if you can become like a Tom Brokaw or a Lucille Ball or something like this, one of of the big mm, famous faces of the golden age of broadcast television, let's say, if you could get to the top of that pyramid, you had access to more eyeballs and ears than ever before in the history of the world. And so what happened was, I believe, this is my theory anyway, and I've written a bit about this, is that this created really new and super powerful selection pressures for Stories and ideas and norms and attitudes that are essentially candy coded that basically tell people what they want to hear. And I think what happened was that this, over time, took on a left wing bias because of the psychological basis of the left versus right ideological continuum. We know it from political psychology that just from an objective perspective, not favoring the left or the right at all, that just there are well known and well documented psychological correlates associated with the left and and the right. And one of the big ones for the left is compassion. And I think when you have a mass media market and broad and centralized broadcast media, what ends up happening is that the the voices and the figures and the ideas that are going to gain the most status, that are going to make it to the top of that hierarchy. Are going to be these candy-coated, soft, effeminate attitudes and ideas and figures, and in a political and, and what that means is, in other words, compassionate, and that's going to bring that's going to have a left-wing correlation. That's my theory of the underlying model. Here, Emma asked me a question from the audience, which was a little confusing, and I don't remember it. It was about conspiracy theories. I think conspiracy theories would be just a subset of the reality fragmentation that I referred to before. And so I think from the perspective of the conspiracy theorist, the people in the group of the conspiracy theory are just trying to question certain things that have historically been prohibited from questioning. But from the person who has their feet inside of the institutions, the conspiracy theorist is a crank, a nut job, and a vaguely dangerous, sinister force that is trying to hurt the world or hurt truth and reason and goodness. And I think that in this interim period, it's literally both of those are true. Only time will tell, really. I think in the like in the end, the the truth of a theory is borne out by the consequences that it produces over a, a fairly long period of time, and when you have a bunch of like new conspiracy theories scrambling for the narrative of reality, you really can't know for sure in the short term like what is what. And I think for the foreseeable future, we're going to be living in this weird nether world where like genuine visionary geniuses who see something real. That has no place in mainstream society or it, it breaks the taboos or just is inconvenient to the norms of mainstream institutions are going to be out there like putting out amazingly interesting, true, creative, badass, awesome stuff that, that really goes in a great direction and is good for everyone in the world. And they're going to be alongside absolutely crazy cranks. Uh, Who believe in all kinds of uh, ridiculous conspiracy theories and superstitions. And I think, like, for the foreseeable future, there's going to be on the outside of institutions, there's going to be this wild hodgepodge where true geniuses are intermingling with like true crackpots. And in terms of what gets labeled what or what gets credit or what gets considered what, you just can't trust third parties. Like, this goes back to what I was saying before about like learning to have the will and the discipline to just not not rely on or lean on your advisor or your mentor or your mother or father or or friend or role model, just because you look up to them. Like everyone, almost everyone, and especially people in mainstream institutions who have platforms, all of those people are highly incentivized to pick winners and losers and pick the people they like and they dislike based on their own extremely contingent, arbitrary personal career and identity interests and you just can't trust them. So like I would just iter- like to answer this question, I would really just reiterate and really insist that you have to look outside of institutions and you have to cultivate a like really steely, just radically determined will to make your own judgments about what is true and what is good uh, in who and where and be just as radically discerning as you can on your own devices as possible because I think the way that things get labeled as good or bad or true or false coming from mainstream institutions or any type of like prestige blue check character, that's going to get more and more scrambled and more and more reliable. So the sooner that you can basically check out of like the collective centralized labeling of good, bad, true, false, the more you can fully check out of that altogether, the better off you're going to be. Here, Emma asked me which of the big conspiracy theories I consider to be pointing in the right direction. I guess I think QAnon is directionally compelling. I think, again, I don't, I'm not like a scholar of any of these. There's, as I said before, there's so many of them and I can't pretend to be like deeply well-versed in any of them. But from what I know of QAnon in very broad strokes, the idea of a deep state, I think is pretty compelling, honestly, at this point. And, oh, I guess something else I would say is that I think the theory that elite politics and elite entertainment circles, such as Hollywood, are filled with an actual fairly explicit, fairly coordinated cabal of pedophiles. I take that theory to be terrifyingly credible. I wouldn't give it like a hundred percent credibility. And of course the details have yet to be discovered or rigorously figured out. For a long time, that was straight up conspiracy theory. That was straight up super low status, crazy crackpot talk. Like Pizzagate was the before the Jeffrey Epstein case. Pizzagate was the last great well-known public theory of of pedophilia in elite circles. And then the Epstein case broke through. And basically, the crackpot Pizzagate people, although the details, again, might be very far off or a very overfitted model, what scientists would call an overfitted model. But directionally, Pizzagate was very compelling, as we now know from Epstein. So I think of all the crazy conspiracy theories, that's the one that's most terrifyingly true compelling, I think. We will probably be terrifyingly surprised over the next 10, 20 years as we figure out how deep that rabbit hole goes. I would put a little bit of money on it being more real and more terrifying than most respectable opinion today is willing to admit. Here Emma asks me what I think post-pandemic politics will look like in America. I remain pretty bullish on American, the American spirit of crazy, wild, decentralized ambition and creativity. I think what a lot of people are complaining about in the pandemic context, about how the American governance response has been pretty bad compared to many other countries, I still think it represents American strength and even if in the short term, maybe more people die in America than would die otherwise if we had a strong authoritarian centralized public health system. I think that in the long run, America is going to actually bounce back from the pandemic better and more vigorously and more rapidly than a lot of other countries. Again, I'm just not convinced that the Chinese authoritarian model, I just don't think that it's really viable and attractive in the very long term. And I do So to be more concrete, I think when the pandemic settles, I think America is going to be even more wild and crazy and disorganized than it's ever been. And I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be better. If you look at like work from home dynamics, for instance, like I think the work from home trend is a a real, again, that's like a euphemism. It really understates how radical the situation is. I think what's really going on under the hood of work from home dynamics is like, People are disengaging from their employers. Like they're becoming less and less invested in their employers. They're becoming less and less beholden to their employers. And I think just like the emotional link, the emotional subservience or the emotional containment that historically jobs and careers have put on to people's lives and souls and energies is, it's weakening. And I think that's a really good thing. I think like the American workforce is going to be way more creative and um, energized and autonomous as one example of what I'm talking about. But I think the even the governance failure, and I admit like American governance over coronavirus has been terrible and will probably continue to be terrible. But what it's really going to do in the long run is it, it's going to make Americans realize they have to get scrappier, right? Like how many millennials that don't even have healthcare? I'm 33 years old and I don't even have healthcare. Um, like I'm I'm doing well in many ways, but I'm not... I don't have a very fully satisfied or secure life yet, and I'm 33. I know tons and tons of people uh, like me and, and younger than me who th- they're lose the fact that they're losing faith in the ability for the American government to ever do anything for them. Although it sucks and it's a bad thing, and I would kind of prefer for like everyone have to, to have healthcare. I think it's just going to basically make people more scrappy. And it's going to make people do more and more creative and radical things when it comes to like lifestyle design or household design or bootstrapping healthcare collectives and, and things like this. And, and I ultimately think that the post-pandemic political response in America is going to be wild, crazy, but uh, more scrappy and more radical and creative than anywhere else. And that's something I believe in. And in my own way, I'm trying to participate in. Here Emma asks me what I think about the business model of indie creators like Sonya Mann. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm friends with Sony. I like Sony a lot. And I'm all about this. I'm And it's what I'm doing. Also, I've tried not to plug my own shit in this talk. But I'm doing very similar things. I'm pretty much living full time now as a content creator and as a little uh, founder of a bootstrapped startup. I've, I'm like one year out of I quit academia one year ago. I was a professor for five years. And then I quit one year ago. And my I've pretty much replaced my salary about a hundred percent, pretty much doing the type of stuff that Sony is doing. So I think there's gonna be more and more people like her, like me, just basically doing independent writing, thinking, creating, and building communities and then ultimately services around it. Like the only thing I would add to what Sony is doing is that I think I think you can do what Sony is doing uh very well and and how ha- and ultimately figure out how to have a decent lifestyle or a a decent recurring income around it. But I will say that I think it's it's very hard to do Alone, like ultimately, most people like Sonia will eventually want to make some startup or some additional set of offerings that's a little bit less personalized and a little bit less intellectual and a little bit more concrete delivery of products or services uh, that have like a, a greater market value. So I'm all about like how to figure out independent intellectual work where you can basically do philosophy or science and and blog and write books and do videos and teach courses totally online independently. And I'm doing those things and I plan on doing them bigger and better. And I think you absolutely are going to be able to make a good living that way. But in the short term, it is pretty hard to do all of those things and only those things and have a truly good, secure financial life and be able to have kids and health insurance and all of those good things. Like It's going to be hard to get true wealth doing all of those things, but it's much easier if in addition to doing all of those things, you just come up with some type of little Bootstrapped startup idea that is a little bit more compelling in terms of market value. And so that's what I'm doing with IndieThinkers.org, which is my little private membership community. And again, I think it's just one example of what many people are going to figure out. I'm sure Sonia will figure out in her own way. And uh, lots of people are going to figure it out. So I'm very bullish on this stuff. Yeah. Here Emma asks me if aspiring authors should self-publish or try to get a traditional book deal we talk about this a ton in Indie Thinkers. My basic um, read on that, that situation based on my own experiences in both worlds, actually. I actually have never pu- uh, published a book with a traditional publisher, but I did have a in, a prestigious New York literary agent. And I pretty much took that process as far as it could go, really, before actually like getting a book contract. And so I, I and I have lots of friends who have done both. I have a lot of familiarity with both systems, and what I would say is that doing a traditional uh, book deal with a big New York uh, literary agent and publisher can be good for sure if pretty much one of two things applies. One is if you're super famous right if you're Lena Dunham or something like that, you probably don't want to the hustle of writing a self-published book. It's a lot of work for you. And yeah, if you're Lena Dunham, it's totally going to be within your interest to get the best literary agent and get a big book deal and then make millions of dollars off your book published by a New York literary agent. So no doubt about that. You can't take that from Miss Dunham. But the thing is that the number of people for whom that applies is decreasing over time. And I'm I'm pretty confident in this. I believe it's borne out in the data. And so what I mean by that is it's like it's a winner takes all kind of thing. And and this is happening over the past several decades, I think you could I think you could fairly say. So that applies to an increasingly small number of people. If you're not like mega, mega famous like Lena Dunham, and you don't have a shtick that is just uh perfect for this like mass market uh type of book, then for more and more people, self-publishing is both in terms of economic returns, but also in terms of influence and power, cultural power or influence, uh, self-publishing is uh, going to be the better option for more and more people every passing year. So I can tell you a little bit about my example and my data for this, my personal the the data or evidence that led me to make this decision personally, I was a professor, I have a PhD, I was like, I was a a professor at a fairly prestigious uh, British university. And I was there, I was a professor for five years. And uh, so I did everything I was playing my dues, I was paying my dues and climbing up the hierarchy, and publishing articles and good journals, all that. And uh, I had after five years, I was like, Okay, time has come, I want to write a book, and I want to write a a popular book. And so pretty much I had on paper, like everything you could possibly want. I, I also had friends who had book deals, right? So like, I talked with my buddy Jeffrey Miller, who did like a book ten years ago or something like that. That was a really big book called *The Mating Mind*. It was really successful, sold a lot, and it was really big. Did, did the whole New York media tour, the whole nine, nine yards. And he had a good agent, lots of experience, knowledge, and connections. I talked to him, and he told me what to do. He put me in touch with people. He helped me get an agent. So pretty much, I had everything you you could you could want or need in terms of skills, background, ability. I had a good book proposal developed in detail. I had the ideas and the discipline, able to do it. And I even had the prestigious institutional position. And I had spent, mind you, my entire adult life building those things up. And I even had connections and networks of people who could help me get in with influential, prestigious New York publishing people. So I literally had everything you could possibly want. And I paid my dues um, for a long time to get there. And all I wanted to do was like publish my first mainstream book about politics. And it's just surprisingly terrible. Like It was hard, and it was annoying, and it was and, and, and I basically spent like one whole year. I got a good literary agent at a good prestigious agency in New York. And I spent like one year just talking to, him. like, he would just tell me to fix things in my proposal and he'd send me back like all these edits and I basically just spent like a year making edits on my proposal before we even send it to anyone okay and um, he was smart cool dude but he didn't really I didn't think he helped very much like he didn't add much value no disrespect to him at all I'm sure he made good suggestions but it didn't really uh, change the level or the quality of the book or anything like that it just spent a year of my life fixing little things, basically. And so then he went and shopped it around to agents and sent it, or I'm sorry, to publishers, sent it to whatever, 2030, as many as literary agents do. And basically just no deal came through. And that that could be for any number of reasons. It's all good. It, It doesn't matter. But my point is, just take me as an example. Uh, If you're going to spend 10 years of your life getting degrees and publishing influential journals and paying your dues and building your networks and basically jumping through all the little hoops you have to get just to get access to a good literary agent who wants to represent you, and then you do everything right and you have a great proposal, but there's still just like a big probability that you strike out for reasons that who knows what probably has nothing to do with you. And um, so my point is, this is just like a cautionary tale from my own experience. This was when I was like also getting fed up with academia, and I was just like, this is so dumb. This is such a waste of my time. Like, All of the shit I'm doing in institutions is a waste of my time. It became patently clear to me. And I was like, in the time it took me to shop around, to develop this book proposal with this guy, I could have written two books and published them myself. So if you just look at basic the expected value of doing a book with... And so the final data point here for people who are really interested in this, I guess I'll I'll keep going deep on this, um, is... If you actually look at the probability distribution or like the expected value distribution of first-time book deals today in like 2020. So it's hard to get clear data on this stuff, but it goes back to what I was saying before that if you're Lena Dunham, you can make millions of dollars off like a traditionally published book. But for the overwhelming majority... Of professors and legit significant, like smart, impressive, like thinkers and scholars, or whatever, for the overwhelming majority of them publishing a book through a New York publisher, you're not going to make much money. At all, and you're not going to get that many readers at all. Like it's, you're not going to make us like the average book publisher, the average author who publishes a book this way, just does not make that much of a splash, does not get that much recognition, does not get that many readers or money, and and that's just a simple statistical fact. So when you multiply that by the probability of simply striking out, where like I did everything right, I had all the things you needed, and I still didn't even get a book deal when you look at the the numbers that i would have done if i did get a book deal and you multiply that by the probability of getting the book deal that's your expected value right so you compare that to the expected value of self publishing for the overwhelming majority of people like me whether you be professors or or anything else anyone any normal educated ambitious person who wants to write a book the the first thing you note about self publishing is if you, So long as you have the will to do it, no one can stop you. So you have a probability of one that it will get published. Okay, That's a huge gain that you're pretty much guaranteed it will get published if you simply want it to get published and you follow through on it. But then here's the real kicker. When you look at the actual amount of money you make from doing a self-published book and the number of readers that you get from doing a self-published book, on average, you're going to do at least as good if not better than many of the people at your level at your age at your at similar characteristics and i won't call people out cuz i'm not tr- i'm not trying to throw shade or whatever but like many narcissistic ambitious people i have kept a tally of many of my peers and i've looked at how they've done things and i've actually gone through a lot of the amazon numbers you can use amazon rankings to back out how much how many readers a book has and how many how much money a book makes you can back all those things out from amazon stats and i can tell you without calling anyone out my first book that i self-published had more readers and made me more money than a lot of people at my age writing in a similar type of book with mainstream publishers so that's my that's my deep dive onto the numbers and the logic of when you should choose to do a traditionally published book versus a self-published book here emma asked me what it's like living with two evolutionary psychologists so I did live with them. I don't anymore. We moved out. We, my wife and I lived with Jeffrey Miller and Diana Fleischman for about one year. Over the past year, we lived with them in Albuquerque, in their home in Albuquerque. And it was really interesting, honestly. like I'm, I think evolutionary psychology is very compelling in many ways. And I think on a lot of big hot button questions, it actually does have probably the most compelling answer on, on many questions. I do think that as a community, it can be prone to certain... How should I say, ethical overconfidence or something like that in its own subculture, if you will, to go back to something we talked about before? It is a subculture in that regard, very similar to like flat earth theory, although not, you know, epistemologically equivalent, not the same level of rigor. So I do think that it's true on many fronts and uh, compelling, and people should study it for sure. But I do think that culture can lend itself to a somewhat I don't want to say I want to choose my words carefully. I'm a Christian, so I do think that science, if you worship it too much as the end-all be-all of what life is and what the human condition is or can be, then we will find yourself going down very uh, ethically disastrous pathways in the long run. I do think that is true, and I do think that eth- uh, that evolutionary psychology subcultures are sometimes guilty of worshiping science to a self-destructive degree. Jeffrey and, and Diana were cool. And uh, I, I would say that living with them was really interesting in that evolutionary psychologists are very accustomed to thinking provocative things that other people look down on and shun and stigmatize. So they're very, in, a good evolutionary psychologist will often be a very independent thinker a very good conversationalist, a provocative interlocutor, and someone who has a very high tolerance for crazy ideas and stuff. And so in the time living with them, there were a couple times I wrote some nuclear tweets that like went mega viral and in like in a provocative way and a negative way. And they didn't blink. They didn't care. They understand the game of thinking provocative stuff that most of mainstream society looks down on. So they were they were very cool on that front. And I think living with evolutionary psychologists or other representatives of radically aggressive, but stigmatized philosophical or scientific worldviews, interacting with those types of people and potentially even living with those people can have very positive effects on your own independence of mind and your own courage and and ability to think and talk and converse. And and converse is special there because that's a specific skill, like actually being able to talk about your ideas in a way that's interesting and fun and dynamic and social. That's a real skill. And you don't really ever cultivate that unless you're Constantly surrounded with people who are educated and think provocative stuff as well, and who can do the repartee. So, for all those reasons, I we really loved living with them. It was very edifying and and interesting and and stimulating. Here, Emma asks me what is better intellectually, being a professor or living with smart and creative people. It's an unfair comparison in that, like academia is a job. At the end of the day, it's just a bureaucratic office career. It's it's just paper pushing. At the end of the day, so it's an unfair comparison. Like. Hanging out with and talking with like highly educated creative thinkers is always going to be like way more stimulating and energizing and intellectually edifying than any like bureaucratic office job. So it, it's almost like an unfair comparison. Here, Emma points out that previously criticized rationalist subcultures for overvaluing science, but I also said that an ideal cult would be calibrated by science. That's very perceptive. Thanks for making that connection and pressing me on that. Here, I'm going to introduce an idea I've written about and talked about, which is that I think there's a difference between science and what I would call honesty. To me, honesty is really the category that um, best captures the like radical, comprehensive truth-seeking that I'm most interested in. So when I talk about building a crazy subculture or cult around some criterion that would be both just off the hinges of all mainstream institutions and truly on its own line of flight if you will but that could be nonetheless calibrated to empirical reality and and anchored and grounded in a certain way also to what is really true to what is really good and true the criterion would not be science but it would be honesty and to me honesty basically includes science so if you're going to try to diagnose empirical reality the only honest way to do that is science but the honest truth of the human condition, the honest fact is that we know science does not comprehend everything and science simply cannot measure it, simply cannot access huge swaths of human experience and of what humans want out of life and what humans do with life. And a truly honest community or, an, or a community organized around honesty would be scientific with respect to all measurable empirical phenomena, but it would be also like in a shared way faithful and loyal to whatever is true also outside of science. And the problem is we don't really know how to get that. We don't know how to adjudicate that interpersonally and intersubjectively. And that's a simple fact, but that's just a challenge. To me, that's just a problem. You have to honestly acknowledge that we don't know how to do that, but you can nonetheless say, I honestly want to figure it out and I honestly want to do it with other people. My only requirement is that they also are honestly trying to do it. And so I don't think there's any a priori like solution to that or any way that I can give you some predefined like criteria for how to do that. But I do think that human beings, I do think that we have affective and evolved feelings, emotions, and senses that for good reason are pretty good at telling us like when someone's bullshitting or not. And I think that it is possible to converge over time on the honest truth of what human community needs and what human community requires if everyone has good faith and, and like tries their honest best. But that's ultimately like faith right I can't prove that to you. I just believe that and I guess that's why ultimately I bite the bullet and admit that I'm a religious person. It's not anti-scientific or other than scientific. It's 100% inclusive of science and consistent with science. What, but what I'm what I am saying is extra scientific. it goes beyond science. like you can't really like fully justify what I'm saying, with scientific protocols. So that's where you have to bite the bullet that it's not anti-scientific. It's just not warranted by science per se. D- does that make sense? It's a wager. It's a leap of faith. It's always, like doing things in reality is always at the margin of leap of faith. And on some, on some level, I think you have to bite that bullet because if you don't, then you're going to be constantly peddling like pseudoscientific like justifications for things that you, you can't rightfully justify with science is my opinion in my view. I would just say it's better to be honest when you encounter margins of thinking or behaving that you're doing them because you think it's the best, but you don't really know and you can't really point to data um, to justify it. And th- I think there are just, it's an objective reality that we as human beings are constantly facing choices and margins where there's literally just no scientific data or protocol to to justify or adjudicate like competing guesses about what to do next. And I think when you confront those guesses you have to bite the bullet, that it's essentially a leap of faith. And yeah, that's my take. That if you bite the bullet, that's essentially a religious leap, then a bunch of good things happen. Whereas if you deny that if you deny that and you try to say everything you do is like justified on by reason, then you actually end up replicating like weird subterranean lies in a way by trying to justify things with science that can't be justified with science. I don't think so. No, I think I know that's where like the leap of faith is different. Like, you're not justifying it. You're saying, this is where I stand and I can do nothing else. It's not just, I'm not like, I'm not justifying it. I'm doing it because I believe it should be done, but I can't justify that it should be done. I'm just going to do it because it's what I believe in. I have faith. I have faith that it's, yeah, good. People want to be able to justify everything through rationality and science because it's seen as low status if you ever think or do anything without that justification. But I think that's I think that's a, a, a trap. Here, Emma asks me what the effect will be if psychedelic drugs continue to become more popular. Will this increase social fragmentation? It might not increase fragmentation and divergence. It could actually be a salve for the interoperability that we talked about before. In other words, like the more different groups experiment with drugs, the more they will converge on some like interoperable sphere, and in a weird way in our contemporary moment, when things are so crazy and fragmented, in a weird way, the increasing prevalence of psychedelic drugs could actually have a convergent, calibrating, coordinating effect. Here Emma asked me how members of Generation Z Mafia could help indiathinkers.org. Oh, that's a lovely and generous question. Yeah, I'm sure in many ways. it's It's a very new invention, and I'm just developing it as I go. When you're first bootstrapping a creative startup that is not really traveling down tried and true paths. Like in a weird way, I'm, I feel like I'm inventing a category. And in, in startup land, it's very dangerous to invent a category. It's like always much more reliable to just do something that's been done a few times before in a slightly different way. In my own way, I am I feel like I'm basically inventing a new category, which is what I call the indie thinker or the the independent intellectual. And there's not enough cases of those to... To really have a big data set of, oh, here's proof that that this is a thing, that this can be done. There's just enough cases of people who have done it successfully for me to believe it's a thing that it's absolutely doable. And there are reproducible insights and knowledge about how to successfully bootstrap yourself as an intellectual startup, as an independent intellectual on the startup model. In other words, that's like what the indie thinker is in a way. So I'm confident it can be done because I'm doing it. Even apart from my startup, just like with my own work, uh, I'm I, I am an I am a successful example of it, uh, and there are many other examples. But it's still so new that it hasn't really been proven uh, in the minds of many people yet, because it's so new and it's a bit of a risky hypothesis. Anyone who gets what I'm trying to do and sees it and thinks that it's viable and is interested in help helping to to make it reality, gosh, there's so many ways anyone could contribute. For, I guess I'll just say to stay in touch, to connect with me, send me a message, send me an email and just share with me what you're seeing. If you have examples or if you have insights or knowledge of how this stuff works, or you have case studies of interesting intellectuals, probably one of the most concrete ways that people help me with everything I'm building is they send me examples of badass philosophers or independent scientists. Like they'll email me, Hey, Justin, have you heard of this guy? He's super smart. He's basically doing geology or chemistry and he, but he's on a YouTube channel instead of an academia and he's got a huge audience and he's super smart and check this out. There's some like, people just basically giving me examples of other indie thinkers who are doing like sophisticated intellectual work in one way or another outside of institutions and are making it work economically. There's so many examples out there, but I can only find so many of them. I'm only exposed to so many of them. So just concretely, that's one low-hanging fruit that people can help me with. If you know of cool indie thinkers who are making it work economically in interesting and creative ways, just send me links to them. One thing I'll say is, I know in the Gen Z mafia, a bunch of you are web developers and hackers. And for what it's worth, I definitely have a handful of ideas that I think could be very um, viable. Little web apps that could possibly be Quite profitable in the long run. In, in the indie thinker space, there are basically a bunch of little like micro services that I think the creator economy uh, could really use that don't exist. I could give you a list of like ten small web app ideas that I have a good reason to believe could be profitable and fairly easy to whip up that would serve the content creator community. In a lot of ways, I think the content creator community is very underserved. One of the one of the bigger hypotheses I have is that. Basically, there's a if you imagine the Venn diagram between the content creator community, like the thousands and thousands of people on Patreon just as like one example, but also elsewhere like Gumroad or whatever, and then you look at like startup land and all of the different little micro SaaS apps that serve startups. There is a overlap in that Venn diagram, in other words, where you could imagine like dozens and dozens of like microservice SaaS apps that do some function for startups where you could make a variant of that for content creators because content creators are essentially mini startups. They just don't know that yet. No one's taught them that yet. And that's what Indie Thinkers is partially about. It's about basically showing intellectual creators on the internet that actually they are startups and there's so much they can learn and do from the startup world, but people haven't built those tools yet. So that's the second thing that if anyone out there is picking up what I'm putting down and you wanted to work on something with me, hit me up. Here Emma asks me what my long-term vision is for indiathinkers.org. I guess I would just want it to be the place where anyone who is interested in doing long-term intellectual research or artistic work, whether it be science, philosophy, or or art, or whatever, but basically just long-term, highbrow, disinterested, Truth seeking work. They all know that actually there is a place where they can go and get everything they need to do that successfully over time in a way that's maximally stimulating and sustainable and fun and effective and that gets them real results. Like, I just want everyone out there to know that's a thing. Like, specifically, an example would be academics or potential academics. Like, I talk with so many young people who are thinking about applying for PhD programs or Master's programs or whatever, because they want to do serious reading and thinking and writing, and they want to write a book and they want to have an intellectual project that they work on seriously over time. And they think the only way to do that is to submit to some idiotic institution and pay a ton of money and submit a ton of their like spirit and creativity to these like ridiculously arbitrary constraints. I just like my end game for indie thinkers. The the real long term goal is that I just want all of those people to know that actually they don't have to submit to all of those constraints. And actually, there is like a thriving big group of really smart, creative people working really hard on serious intellectual and creative projects. And for just a few bucks a month, you can be a part of that immediately and basically get all the structures and and supports that you need to do your own work with maximum freedom and in a way that's in the long run, economically viable. Like I want to build the place and the system and the set of structures that can basically give that to anyone who genuinely wants it at scale. And I really just want people to know that option exists and that it's it's viable and it's available. So that in the long run, I think it could save it could basically save so many people so many wasted hours of just petty, sad contortion and domestication of their potential, and like just liberate and unleash um, so much creativity. That is currently just like being killed on the altar of these dead end institutional career goals. Thank you so much for your interest and for all of these really interesting and generative questions. Thanks so much.